we're going to suppose that everyone in this room is uh, comprises the majority of the people that will be in this room over the next 45 minutes or so, so we'll get started. This is the end. This is the end of the nation. We've been seeing it coming, seeing it told, and now it's the end. We see the very last few words of Jeremiah to the people, the very last administrative, I'm going to call them administrative tasks here in chapter 32, be in your Bibles in chapter 32, um, because, but this is, it really is the very end, and um, nothing will come after this. Jeremiah chapter 32 um, in your reading, you would have read uh, nothing new from this, wherein Jeremiah is in prison, and why is Jeremiah shut up in prison? He spoke the truth. That's merit enough in, under, in, in these times to land you in prison. And... So they're asking him, why are you saying these things about the king and the, and the land and the king of Babylon? And so he's in prison. But, but this, is, this is nothing new, and I have literally nothing else to say about Jeremiah being in prison, except that at this time as well, God gives Jeremiah a very strange instruction. Now, we've seen this thing, this has played out before. Um, we've bought this waistband, you'll remember, and immediately ruined it. And it was a, a picture of God's people that should have been lovely, should have been good, should have been cherished, and they're ruined, and it's just disgusting. It's a dirty diaper, somebody said, it's, and, and we were supposing that God even made him put it back on and wear it as a symbol and a sign so we bought a waistband and immediately ruined it. What do we do with the lovely new jar we bought? Straight out the potsherd gate to the place of all the broken pottery, call everybody around, and we've broken that. Now, I, I, this one might take the cake, because in, chapter, in verses 6 and 7 and following, um, which one of you, by the way, would be looking to buy property if we're losing a land war on our own soil, say, to China or something like that? Are you buying property at that time? That's not, that's not going to happen. Nobody's doing that. And yet God tells Jeremiah to go and buy this field that he has the, the right to. What good would that be? This is what God instructs Jeremiah to do. And Jeremiah, for his part, obeys. He goes out. Um, not knowing what's in store for him, he goes out and obeys the Lord at his earliest opportunity. It reminds me of what Peter said. I don't, I don't make sense of what you're telling me to let down my nets in the deep water, and that's not where we fish, and I fished all night, and I'm telling you, they're not, they're not fish. <laughs> but his statement to the Lord at that time was, at your bidding or at your word, I will do it. I find the same attitude in Jeremiah. He trusts in God's plan, although he begins to, he, he voices this really beautiful kind of response to the Lord that will show that he has some questions about what he's doing, as maybe any 
thinking, rational person would and should. And yet, he obeys and he trusts the Lord. And listen to how this uh, plays out. In verse 17, he says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you've made the heavens and the earth with your power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. I, I believe that this is Jeremiah displaying trust in the Lord. And he shows that he knows God's ways. He, I'm, I'm going to say he's calling attention to God's essential character. The character of God that wants to show loving kindness and mercy to the people. Calling out with warnings because it's mercy. We want you to avoid these things. In verse 18, listen for the words of Exodus 34. Nothing is too difficult for you. You are the one who shows loving kindness to thousands, but repays iniquity, the, the iniquity of the fathers into the bosom of their children after them. Those familiar words that we've been trying to say, it's all of this is saying who God is and what he's about. And Jeremiah knows this and everybody else is learning it. Um, in, some of them in a timely way, but most, almost all of them in an untimely way. Um, so he, he obeys, he trusts, and he knows God's ways, but he still has questions. In verses 24 and 25, you see that he doesn't fully understand the instruction. He's, well, he understands the instruction, but the timing probably gives him some questions. Now, I'm, I'm doing what you've commanded me to do, Lord, but in verse 24, behold, look, I'm looking around. And can't you see the siege walls are literally up to the top of the walls of the city. They've reached the city to take it. The city's given into the hand of the Chaldeans who fight against it because of the sword, the famine, the pestilence. And what you have spoken has come to pass. And you see it. And you've said to me, O Lord, buy for yourself the field with money and call in witnesses, although the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Now, he doesn't provide any resistance to the Lord's instructions, but his mind is trying to think this through. Who buys land when land is utterly worthless? This isn't an investment. This isn't buy low, sell high. This is not an opportunist. This is somebody who just, uh, even though he can't make sense of it, is going to um, follow the, the, the Lord's ways. Um, so, Yes, indeed. Is anything too difficult for me? And the Lord will give him some reassurance in this. The word of the Lord, verse 26, came to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, just like you acknowledged. The God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? You've said it yourself. Now, I want you to really put your trust in what you um, acknowledge. And he says, yes, I'm going to give the city into the hand of the Chaldeans. Yes, I'm going to drive these people out, but I'm going to bring them back. And, yes, I'm uprooting them any day now, like you're noticing. It's about to happen, obviously. But I'm going to plant them again. Listen to verse uh, 41. I will, at a later time, rejoice over them to do them good, and I will faithfully plant them in this land. This land has a future, even this, this very property that Jeremiah is going to buy. I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and all my soul. And just like I've 
was going to bring a great disaster on them. I'm going to bring great good, all the good that I promised them as well. And so he's going to do everything he promises in judgment and in great uh, goodness. And this, is, this goes back to his earliest statements. What was Jeremiah's word, what were the words of Jeremiah going to comprise? Uprooting, plucking up, but also planting again. Tearing down, breaking down, overthrowing, but also what? Building again, right? And so we're seeing some of those words even at this late hour right now. All right, say something if you'd like to make a comment. Otherwise, find uh, chapter 34. What needs to be said about this? Before we go on. Very quick vignette from chapter 34. The summary of this was that um, in accordance with the covenant that God had made with them, he expected them to release anyone who was serving them after those seven years. Well, this is not in their nature to, to uh, have this kind of character and to keep the covenant and do things like release people who are serving you free of charge. Um, and yet, when they realize their bad situation, evidently the king is encouraging them to say, we need to release our people. We need to release these servants that have been serving us. And so they, they actually do this. Um, I have some questions about their motivation for doing this. I think I have good reason to have some questions about their motivations. Um, but yes, they released their servants. I think Jeremiah will highlight, though, that this wasn't just from a dedication to keeping the covenant of the Lord. Um, well, so much as maybe something else. But Jeremiah is rebuking them here in chapter 34. Again, just, we'll spend just about two minutes on this. Because after having done that, now they've changed their minds again and called them up and said, no, actually, I think I'm not going to release you from this. Come back. And so that gives me reason to question what they have in mind. And I wonder if their sort of uh, temporary obedience was sort of an obedience of convenience or something like that, because it doesn't seem to be an obedience of great conviction. They says, you're right. You're right. We've broken the covenant. Everything that the covenant said, we're turning around to do now. Maybe when they're forced to, maybe if Josiah kind of makes them take their idolatry to the shadows because they can't do it openly anymore. And maybe when Zedekiah makes them cut loose their, their, um, the servants that are their fellow man, but only as long as they, you know, can't get away with taking them back, right? And so God says in this case, and as in so many others, their punishment for going back, repenting, is, is going to be very uh, well appropriate, I would say. They retracted the release and this liberty that they had proclaimed um, to the captives. And the Lord is going to uh, release them, he'll say. And let's see here. Um, we'll find where we are here. And so come down to verse 17 and we'll see this. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you've not obeyed me in proclaiming release each man to his neighbor. Oh, yes, yeah, we certainly did. No, you took it back. You repented of repenting. You haven't obeyed me 
uh, in proclaiming release, behold, I'm proclaiming release to you. And where are we going to go, Lord? Well, to the sword, to the pestilence, to the famine. And I'm going to make you a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. He, when they had declared liberty for the, the ones that had been serving them, and then taken that back, well, now God is going to give them a great liberty. <laughs> Die any way you want to. He, he would say, where shall we go, Lord? Uh, chapter 20, I think, if I'm remembering right. He says, oh, yeah, uh, the ones who are destined for the sword, you're headed for the sword. You're welcome to go. Now's your time to go. And much of the same thing. It reminds me, and it'd be hard not to think, of all of the statements in Romans chapter 1, where the people had chosen their own ways, and God gave them the fruits of their own ways. He gave them over, three times it says, gave them over to, um, well, the results of their own behavior. We're going on to um, the end, the end of the end, in chapter uh, 39, unless you want to say something quickly before we uh, go there. I was talking with uh, Daniel after class uh, last week, and so we had been in chapter 38 reading this, this great encouragement that Jeremiah was trying to get the people, even at this late hour, to just, would you please obey? Zedekiah, please obey. If you'll listen to my words, it's life. We're going to re recap, rehash all of that in, in what we see here. But the blunt realities of God's word is coming home in just the most passive and almost offhand statement that I read almost anywhere in scripture. And your, your translations will vary. If you're reading from a good translation like the New American Standard Bible, it's going to have an extra word in there. I, I, this is teasing. You can smile. Uh, it's teasing because the New American Standard will have the word when, and it says this. This is how mine reads, uh, Jeremiah 39, verse 1. Now it came about when Jerusalem was captured in the ninth year of Zedekiah, the king of uh, Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it, and the um, city was breached, and they've come in. It's not that, you know, I would almost expect it to read like this. You know, at such and so time, in the ninth year, Jerusalem was captured, just like the word of the Lord had said. Just in accordance with everything that the Lord had said. But it doesn't even give you that. It's just these blunt realities that, and it's almost said in this offhand, matter-of-fact way. And it's stated like, when, and when it happened, it happened. And it was always going to happen. It was already history before it had even come to pass because God spoke it. He's the one that was, had brought them. The city had been given into the hands of the king of Babylon. And it just, we hadn't seen it happen yet, but it had happened. God had already done it, just as he had said. But it doesn't read that way. It's just the blunt, matter-of-fact, harsh realities of it all. Um, and so it's not given a whole lot of uh, attention or uh, there is some detail given to us, but maybe it's just because it's just not that noteworthy <laughs> when the Lord has done, spent uh, nearly 40 years by Jeremiah and many more years by all the others saying so, 
And when it happened, it happened, right? We spent uh, most of our time together last week seeing Jeremiah tirelessly repeat the encouragement for them to go out to the king of Babylon. And the irony, the irony of these events comes home in a really, it, it's, it's hard to read. It's, it's not fun to read. It's hard, it, come down to verse 4, and I think you'll see what I'm seeing here. It came about when Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and all the men of war saw the breach of the walls. They fled, and they went out of the city. They went out of the city by night, um, by way of the king's garden, through the gate between the two walls, and went out toward the Arabah. You see, this is, this is not going out the gates in the way Jeremiah encouraged, but they went out all right, and... Again, the irony of this hits me in a very uh, powerful way. Jeremiah had put it, put it in these terms in chapter 38. You can probably see this maybe on the same page here in verse 17. Go out and surrender. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will indeed go out to the officers of the king of Babylon, then you will live. So simple. So straightforward. You will live, the city will not be burned with fire, you and your household will survive. But if you will not go out to the officers of the king of Babylon, then this city will be given over to the hands of the Chaldeans, they will burn it with fire, and you yourself will not escape. Jeremiah goes on to say, I'm showing you the way of life, and I'm showing you the way of death. And please, choose life. Why would you die? Remember Ezekiel 33? Why would you choose to die when I'm showing you how you can live. And he goes on, when Zedekiah puts up some kind of resistance to Jeremiah's instructions, Jeremiah then, this is all Jeremiah, this is not even the Lord speaking anymore. Jeremiah in his, well, in his godlikeness is going to say to him in verse 20, we're still in chapter 38, please obey the Lord and what I'm saying to you that it may go well with you and that you may live. All right, this is what we've seen just on repeated occasions. And Zedekiah occasionally brings Jeremiah to jail, pulls him out of a pit and says, is there a word of the Lord? I'd love to know if there's any new word. He just didn't. He wasn't happy with that message. And he was going to continue to resist it. It works out like this. And this, is, this doesn't look like it did on my computer, but this will serve our purpose. The way of life has to do with going out. The way of death has to do with going out. But he had the opportunity. And in the very plain instructions, he had the opportunity to go out with dignity because he's chosen to do this in a, like a forthright act, okay? But that's not what um, he, he did. He could have done it in a show of humility. And this was an, you know, this would have given him the opportunity of hope. He says, this is how I can be saved. This is how my household can be saved. This is how the city can be saved. Hope. But what did he choose instead? The way of death. Now, he went out. He went out of the city. But it looked like this. It was defeat. He went out in danger. He's trying to make sure he can uh, get out with his life, escape by maybe the only secret way that he could find. He's going out in fear of his very life him and those others, and it's 
an act of despair. It's utter hopelessness. You see the irony in all of this? And what we've begun to say last week is, I, I, there's a very obviously a very powerful lesson for us. The way of life is uncomfortable. You ready to go face the king of Babylon or any of his officers that are besieging your city? That's, that's not easy to face. And yet, could he not see how much worse the alternative was? How could you not see? It's uncomfortable and it's familiar, but surely, surely you can see. But yet, every day, people are choosing the broad way, the way that leads to death. Many are there are that find it, and all of them will live to regret it. You see a contrast in chapter 39. Contrast between Zedekiah trying to escape for his life with no success. He's seized, he's judged, he's blinded, he's bound, and he's carried away. But one of the, one of the most um, beautiful and smallest little moments here in the book comes when we come down to verse 15. Jeremiah, again, one of these little administrative tasks. Go by a field. It's like, I got five minutes left before they make it into the city. Go by the field. And you need to go talk to Ebed-Melech. Because you'll remember this is the one who had saved him from the pit. And so evidently he's a man who's aligned with God's ways, aligned with Jeremiah's message, um, and supporting Jeremiah. Well, the word of the Lord to him specifically personally, this is beautiful, is this. In verse 16, thus says the Lord God of hosts to you, Ebed-Melech, behold, I am about to bring my words on this city for disaster, not for prosperity, and they will take place before you on this day. He's going to see it. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall not be given into the hand of the men whom you dread, for I will certainly rescue you. And you will not fall by the sword, but you will have your own life as booty because you trusted in me, declares the Lord. Ebed-Melech, the man who trusted in God. At this point, I want you to recall Jeremiah 17. Because what you'll recall from that is this, the, the very familiar words, true at any age and certainly true in the case of these two men. First, he says in verse 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. And he's going to be like that. Do you, do you remember what that man, somebody tell me what that man would be like? A bush where? I'll give you part of it. Yeah, a bush in the desert. All dried up. Um, and, and, and it's a curse. On the other hand, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. It'll say in about verse 8. Um, and he's like a tree. It's the Psalm 1 uh, kind of in, in short thing. And that is the, the contrast between these two men. There's a man who trusted in the Lord, and on that basis, he was spared. But then there was the man Zedekiah, he trusted not in the Lord, but in men like Pharaoh and his armies. He thought, 
if I, maybe I can hold out. I can avoid surrender because there's salvation coming from uh, the Egyptians. Well, no, my trust is in walls. As long as we're safe behind these walls and we have a good little secret little between the walls escape route, maybe we'll be fine. This is a man who did not put his trust in the Lord. Jeremiah, what we've just read, Jeremiah showed him the way to put his trust in the Lord. God says, if you go out, I'm going to spare you. Um, but he refused. And they saw their respective outcomes. One was cursed to a miserable fate, but Ebed-Melech, beautiful, beautiful, spared and was blessed seeing God's favor and his salvation. Just such a small thing and, and such a bright spot in this very, very heavy section. We haven't changed topics when we come to chapter 52, but if you want to say something at this point, we've kind of paused here briefly. When we come to chapter 52, it's essentially the same account, um, very much parallel to what we've seen so far. And it's the, this, uh, this recap brought to you by the letter B. This is not overly forced. This is not artificial. I'm it's in the text. You seek it out yourself. Uh, if, you, if you ever think it's a little bit forced sometimes when we're trying to give ourselves some, oh, learning devices and things like that. Um, Mitch was doing it a few weeks back and helping me out, so I'm not the only one. But this is, this is the, um, the summary of chapter 52. Babylon has come, in verse 4, they built a siege wall and they've broken into the city, which is what we had seen. Um, what we hadn't really said much about was that after Zedekiah tries to escape, um, you probably remember very well the really, well, the, it's, again, it's hard to read. I don't know what to, I don't even know what to say about it. He's uh, taken to the king of Babylon. He's judged. And um, all the people surrounding him are put to death in front of his eyes. Then he is blinded put in bronze shackles, chapter 39 will say, and just ends up just like any other captive on his way to Babylon. And, uh, and no wonder. Um, the rest of this is that they've um, really made the city, laid the city waste. Anywhere there was um, a house that looked beautiful and worthwhile, that was burned to the ground. They've come to the Lord's house even. This is the temple of the Lord. Remember chapter 7? The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Deceptive words. Would God destroy his own temple? It'll never happen, right? You're trusting in the wrong thing. And so now they've come into the house of the Lord. You'll remember in chapter 27, verse 16, Jeremiah's words are in contrast to the words of all the rest of the prophets, and especially Hananiah. And he told, the, 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 the people were told at that time, don't trust in deceptive words. When you're hearing these prophets telling you, any day now, these, the vessels of the house of the Lord, they're coming back. It's the house of the Lord, after all. The temple of the Lord. Deceptive words. Don't trust in them. And in fact, what you need to be doing is praying for the the stuff that still remains in the temple, while there's still hope. 
But the word of the Lord at that time in chapter 27 was that, um, behold, the vessels of the Lord's house actually will be brought to Babylon, and they, are, they shall be there until the day I visit them and bring them back and restore all of them. And it's, it's coming to pass just like you would expect. And then the, the summary of that is all these captives, anyone that, was, anyone, anyone that was worthwhile, carried off to Babylon. And come down to verse 14 of this and, and see if you see all of these things we've been saying all along. We've been saying that the words of Jeremiah would be to break down, to overthrow, to destroy and when I started reading, well, when I was reading through this, this, it captured my attention, and I saw, yeah, here it is. And it's the end. All the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. Then Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, carried away into exile some of the poorest of the people, only some of those, but the rest of the people who were left in the city, all of them, the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon uh, voluntarily, as well as the rest of the artisans. Verse 16 is um, important to what we'll see in chapter 40 and 41, which is that he did leave some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. The land's worthless if uh, it's completely overrun. And I also wonder if this is kind of God's provision. If he's going to bring them back and replant and restore them to their own land, um, this needs to be maintained in the meanwhile. So did he select the, the cream of the crop to be the ones to do this? Maybe the best are spared and, and, and remain in the land. Is that how that played out? Shake your head either this way or this way. I see you shaking your heads. That's not how this played out. That's not, that's not what was coming to pass here. And so don't, you, we can't think that. We'll see that again as we come to chapters 40 and 41. I think we'll get through this tonight. The very last of this um, book is another one of those very small Vignette. So we're going to read it now, and we're coming back to it um, uh, in, in a week or two from now. But one of the most uh, interesting little pieces of information, just strictly, it's not strictly informational. It can't be. There's something really beautiful, and I, I think some lessons for us in this. So we're going to visit it now and come back to it later. It came about in the 30, this is verse 31. It came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Rotten king, served as king for only uh, really uh, a week, so to speak. In the 12th month, 25th of the month, gives very specifics. Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, showed favor to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. Can you conceive of any reason this man would intend to do this? Verse 32, beyond that, he spoke kindly to him, and he set his throne above the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. He showed favor, he's uh, shown honor, 
He's treated very well. And in verse 33, it just... Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes and had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. And for his allowance, a, a regular allowance was given him by the king of Babylon, a daily portion all the days of his life until the day of his death. What an unusual and strange little piece of information to throw. The last thing I want you to know before, you know, I, I roll up the scroll and leave it for another time is that God, maybe, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, showed favor to this rotten son of Josiah. What an interesting thing to say. That's it. No more on that. Coming back to it later. All right. I want you to turn to uh, chapter 40 and 41 as we um, start to see the aftermath of the events we've seen so far. Okay. And I'm reminding you of something you had seen in, let's see, this would be chapter 24. Good figs and bad figs. And what do they have to do with what we're seeing in Jeremiah 40 and 41? One of the most striking things in this entire book is found in verse 2. Jeremiah has an interview with the captain of the bodyguard. This, is, this has to be like second in command of all of Babylon. And he's being released. He says, he's being shown favor. You can go back to the, your land, live where you want to live. And, but his commentary is absolutely unbelievable. And I cannot account for it. I can't explain what this man is saying. So read with me verse 2. The captain of the bodyguard had taken Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God promised this calamity against this place. What does this foreign bodyguard know about the promises of God and calamity against this place? And the Lord has brought it on and done just as he had promised, because you people sinned against the Lord and did not listen to his voice. Therefore, this has happened to you. Now, I don't know if he was quite that, I don't know, animated <laughs> when he was just kind of recounting this to Jeremiah. In fact, I'm pretty sure he wasn't. I'm pretty sure this was kind of said just as though everybody knows, even everybody in, who, everybody in Babylon, do they all know this? And how did God's people not kind of pick up on this ahead of time and say, we know what the Lord has promised and we'd sure like to avoid all that sounds pretty unpleasant. And we know that the Lord will bring it about just as he has promised if we just keep going on. And this foreign bodyguard says, yeah, just like God promised. But if you are careful in seeing what he said, he's acknowledging and saying things that evidently no one in Judah was paying any attention to. This foreign captain knows God. He acknowledges the God of heaven, the Lord your God. He, he um, identifies him, and he acknowledges his sovereign rule in the affairs of men. This is the God who, when he says things and he moves one kingdom against another kingdom, it'll happen. By the way, don't miss the fact 
that God had said all along, I'm going to make people know me. All the nations are going to know because of you. <laughs> You're going to know because of what I've said and then when it comes to pass. And I can't account for it. I don't, I can't explain this. Somebody, yeah, okay, good, good. <laughs> Somebody's raising their hand. But this man knows. Say something to help us here, Brian. This is, this is complete speculation on my part, but I can't help but think about Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and the way that they lived their faith. You know, if you think about the accounting that we have for them is individuals in a foreign place who are not ashamed of their faith, even in the face of trials and temptations. And I can certainly imagine a scenario where their faith, their proclamation of God, God's power displayed through wondrous works has, has reached outside of, outside of the palace, in and among Babylon, and maybe this is just one such person who's been exposed to that faith. That must be it. That might explain it. The, um, if you have a Daniel who's turning his face toward Jerusalem, he'd have opportunity to tell people, you know, I'm praying toward Jerusalem, and God's temple is there, but it's only there for a short little while longer. God has said, you know, if these people keep doing what I see them here that they're doing, that it's not going to go well for them. He's going to bring about disaster on all them back there. That has to be it, right? The ones who had gone away. And, but the, the detail of this man's knowledge about these things, how else could he know? I don't know. Maybe there's, God had some other prophets in these places as well. He knew um, not just God. He knew not just that what God says will happen. But he knew some of the specifics about, I'm just calling them either proclamations. He, he calls them promises. Um, we could call them prophecies because they hadn't come about yet. You, uh, God brought it on and done just as he had promised, he says. And in one of the most, um, I don't know, it's humorous statements of all. And it's because you people sinned against the Lord and did not listen to his voice. Okay, what have we said all along? <laughs> the people are hearing this message. You've not listened to me. You haven't even listened to me when I've spoken to you. And this man knows it. They wouldn't hear it, but this man knows it. Um, and so, yeah, I'm sticking with that as the theme of Jeremiah. You, ha you, you haven't listened to the Lord. <laughs> but you will know him. And this man knows him, and now they've come to the, the Israelites, or the, Jew, the men of sons of Judah, at this late hour, they learned it after this foreign um, uh, outsider. And so, yeah, he knew Israel's sin, he knew Israel's rebellion, and in all of this, he's just saying, this is what you should have expected. What, what came about is... Everything that you should have expected. And so that was what we read at the end of verse 4. Because you people sinned against the Lord and did not listen to his voice, therefore this thing has happened to you. Like, what did you expect? This is the natural outcome of not listening to all of these proclamations of disaster. Anyway, very, very interesting there. He does end up releasing Jeremiah, and for the rest of our uh, last few minutes here, all that we're going to do is really, oh, I don't have anything on this, uh, is, is the recap of 
chapter 40 and 41, kind of the aftermath. And what you'll see is really chaotic um, times. And in, in, in all the events of these chapters will, will really seem chaotic. And I think maybe what we're seeing is the fact that God has, we know that God has withdrawn his favor from these people. I think this is the natural outcome of that. That he's withdrawn his favor, and so what would you expect? Peace? There's not peace if the Lord has withdrawn his peace. Um, and so this is what that looks like. As we had said uh, a few minutes ago, Nebuzaradan, captain of the bodyguard, the commander, had left the poor to tend the land. And we said, are they spared for their, uh, you know, because of God's favor toward them? Well, no. And it's because, I know that because back in chapter 24, you remember there were two baskets of figs. What do you see, Jeremiah? I, I see uh, two baskets of figs. What about them? Well, the, these look really good, and these look ba really bad. You can't eat these, and, but that's all I can say. Well, God says, okay, the good figs, that's how I'm going to look at the people who have gone away into captivity. Are they good? No, <laughs> but it's God's good favor toward them, and so he's going to count them like good figs. What about the other ones? Yeah, the bad figs, those are the ones that are left. They're left behind. I've... I, it's, I don't want them. I'm not taking them. I'm taking away what's good. They're the ones that are spared um, and treated well. These are the worthless leftovers. Um, and no one saves rotten fruit. So, no, that's not what's going on here. This is, I, like I've said before, I think this is just God's way of preserving the land, kind of maintaining it in the meantime for another 30, 40 years until he can bring the people back and they're going to be uh, able to enjoy the land at that time. Um, Nebuchadnezzar appoints Gedaliah in, as governor in verse 7. He's this um, going to be the one in charge, but that is short-lived. Um, people come from, come from all corners, really everyone who's hearing, okay, things are maybe starting to get stable. Let's come and let's, let's kind of see what we can do toward regrouping, rebuilding, they start uh, gathering in a harvest, but trouble is brewing because the king of Ammon, Ammon sends a man named Ishmael, caused some trouble. Evidently, what he had in mind was, we're going to cut off the head, cause some chaos, and um, this is going to be an opportunity for us to have some, prob probably with these captives, some uh, servants, some slaves in all of this, capture the vulnerable, defenseless ones, and that's what uh, comes about in all of this. Every bit of that happens. Um, the people would have gone over to Ammon in captivity, except for this man, Johanan, the son of Korea. He acted with um, nobility in several ways. He bravely kind of took his band and confronted this Ammonite hireling and ends up delivering the people. And this will set the stage for what we'll see. It'll be two weeks from now, but it's really the continuation of this narrative. We had to, we'll have to put this on pause for a minute. But as I said, this sets the stage because they come back to the land. They're not headed back to Jerusalem. That wouldn't do them any good. That's uninhabitable, right? It's, it's a desolation at this point. 
they, it points out that they go to this place, Gareth Chimham, which is beside Bethlehem. That's a little more familiar. We can understand where that is. But this is just a temporary landing spot because the king of Babylon is probably pretty irate. He's just now left. He's put a governor in charge, and that governor's been killed, and they don't want to be around to see what happens when not only is the king of Babylon, you know, done what he's done, now he's going to be ticked off or whatever for that. And their determination is, we'd be safe in Egypt. Surely we'd be safe in Egypt. And that sets us up again to see the, that account and to see that the word of the Lord will be, no, don't go to Egypt. And if you've learned anything, if you put your trust in me and the way I show you to go, it's the way of life. If you choose uh, to go your own way and to put your trust in mankind or whatever that looks like, it's the way of death. And the sword which you fear will chase you all the way down to Egypt. That's not a response. And we'll just, we'll see. We'll see if they respond appropriately when we actually get to read together chapter uh, 42. But it's very easy to conclude when we've seen this. God has withdrawn his favor from these people, and that's what they should have expected. Well, thank you very much for being here tonight. We'll see you next week.